1: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim D. the pop music critic at the Chicago
2: Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today, on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to discuss the phenomenon of the musical supergroup. Plus, later on in the show, we'll review the new album from rapper Most Def.
1: Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing, creating speaker systems for the iPod and the computer, allowing music fans to listen critically.
3: Online at alltechlansing.com. Hear what's next.
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news.
1: Greg, there's something different for sound opinions. That is a commercial that aired in China for Pepsi Red. It's a, a version of Pepsi Cola that was uh, originated in Japan. has a ginger flavor to it, sold in a red can. Uh, the reason we're talking <laughs> about this is that Pepsi Cola is getting into the record business in China. It is starting a record label, Q Music. That is designed to groom, produce, and ultimately control the recording stars for the Chinese listening public. They figure it is going to be a lot better than buying pop stars, songs to, to put into commercials over there. They're going to create their own. It is stemming out of a TV show that they're already producing, which is a sort of Battle of the Bands thing. It's called Battle of mm-hmm. the Bands. Ten different Chinese bands compete for prize money and a recording deal with Pepsi. We saw this recently in the States uh, at a much lower key level with Mountain Dew recording uh, several bands uh, including Chicago's hip-hop crew, the Cool Kids, But but they have much bigger goals overseas. I mean, China <laughs> China
2: is the market, right? It's unbelievable. It is. It's a huge population, obviously. It's also the wild, wild west of the music industry. I mean, nobody really has figured out how to sell records in China because the, the rogue market over there is unbelievable. For bootlegs, downloading, file sharing, it's just going crazy. Nobody's ever figured out how to really monetize the great amount of music activity going on. But Pepsi's going to try. Uh, at, at the end of this year, apparently, the the winner of the Battle of the Band's reality show is going to be featured in a commercial for Pepsi. And it's going to be sort of this American Idol-type franchise yeah. where they try to build an audience Chinese for, the, for this Idol. band. Yeah, exactly. But whether they're going to be able to sell any music for this band is, is another question entirely. I'm still stumbling over ginger-flavored <laughs> cola. <laughs>
0: Up, shook up girl got me so strong i, I don 't know what to do. She's a mixed up mixed up, up
2: that 's mixed up shook up girl a track from a band known as Mink Deville, led by one Willie Deville the reason we 're playing it is that uh, Willie Deville has died at age fifty eight of pancreatic cancer, probably not a household name. Didn't have any U.S. hits, but I wanted to spotlight him, Jim, because I thought he was one of the key artists of that CBGB punk new wave scene out in New York in the mid-'70s. An artist with a difference. I mean, he was lumped in alongside Blondie and the Talking Heads and the Ramones and television. But I think he was really a child more of that brill-building pop sound combined with soul and R&B of the the late 50s and early 60s. And he really updated that sound for a new generation. It was featured on one of the first CBGB live compilations. That's where he rose to fame initially. And caught the ear of one Jack Nietzsche, who was the... uh, right-hand man of Phil Spector on many of his early 60s recordings. So Nietzsche went into the studio with Mink DeVille, Willie DeVille's band, and recorded three extraordinary albums starting with Cabretta in 1977. Loved this guy, worked with him in the studio, updated that sound that Spector made famous in the early 60s. With DeVille as the lead vocalist, this guy had style, man. You saw him yeah. on stage, and he had the <laughs> sharpest suits and those Italian shoes. And, and that he mustache. And had that pencil-thin mustache. Um, he looked good. I remember distinctly going to a show... And uh, you know we all we were all dancing because we loved uh, we loved the music it was it was very romantic kind of music for that era. It brought our girlfriends, and I think by the end of the show, Willie DeVille was hitting on every one of our girlfriends <laughs> and, and probably stole two or three of them away at the time. Well, what I loved about him, Greg, is that he was one of a handful of artists
1: who Rockpile in the UK were another that kind of drew the lines. This punk explosion didn't come out of nowhere; it had its roots. There were Cajun guys in the '50s mm-hmm. who were punk rock. Right. there was Edith Piaf was punk rock in a way, and it was like a, a history lesson for those of us young,
2: you know, Turks who just thought it all got invented with the Ramones. Exactly. I mean, he was the guy that introduced me to the music of Doc Pomas and those Lieber Stoller songs. Dr. John? uh, Brill Building. Yes, he worked with Dr. John later on in his career. Uh, Mark Knopfler later uh, produced a record for him. But I think the uh, ground zero for Mink DeVille was uh, Cabretta, the 1977 debut produced by Jack Nietzsche. And uh, here's one of the best songs off it. Spanish Stroll by the late, great Willie DeVille on Sound Opinions.
0: It's
4: the gym. I can see the shape you're in. Finger on your eyebrow, and left hand on your hip. Thinking that you're such a lady killer. Think you're so slick. Well, alright. Johnny, he caught a plane and he got on it. Now he's a razor in the wind, and he's got a pistol in his pocket. They say the man is crazy on the coast. Lord, there ain't no doubt about it. Well, alright. What are we gonna do? And she said take two candles and then you'll burn them out. Make a paper bowl, light it and send it out.
0: Send it out now.
1: Spanish Stroll by Mink Deville, Willie Deville, the band leader dead at fifty-eight.
3: Don't you forget about me Don't don't
0: don't don't, don't you forget about
1: me but you won't come by Greg, I think it is impossible to hear that song Don't You by Simple Minds and not think of that film The Breakfast Club from 1985, <laughs> a classic movie that really defined the teenage experience in the 80s. I was a teenager when I saw all those films by John Hughes. It was my life. I was the geek. I was the (laughs) Michael Anthony Hall. As you probably know, John Hughes died a little more than a week ago, had a heart attack in New York. A sad story, but I think he's important to remember as a great music lover, a big fan and a guy who really perfected the combination of sound and vision in that string of films he made in the 80s. He was performing a huge service, Greg. When you recall that just post-punk with the big flowering of New Wave in the UK and stuff bubbling under in the underground in America, that stuff was not being played on radio. Certainly outside of New York and Los Angeles, a lot of people discovered this kind of alternative music, the full blossoming of which would happen in the 90s via John Hughes films. And you think about the string of uh, of pairings of great songs and, and scenes in his movies, you know, True by Spandau Ballet or Turning Japanese by The Vapors in 16 Candles in 84, or uh, the use of Oh Yeah by Yellow in Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 86. I mean, classic stuff.
2: 1999, when we were just starting the show on another station, Jim, uh, we got John Hughes into the studio with us to talk about music, and uh, it was an extraordinary conversation. He, he was, it was a tough interview in terms of just being able to get him to talk about anything, but when it came to music, he wanted—he could talk all night about yeah. it. And in fact, uh, those days when he was trolling the aisles at uh, Wax Trax Records on Lincoln Avenue in Chicago, looking for those new wave and, and post-punk imports, those were some of the happiest days of his life. And those songs and those records that he bought at that store... They were kind of like writing the script with him. And even to the very end, I mean, we're talking about a guy in 1999 who made this movie Reach the Rock in which he completely used the post-rock music that was bubbling through Chicago at that Mm -hmm. time you know bands like Tortoise and Sea and Cake so he was always interested in what was new what was underground and figuring out a way to build movies around I think really extraordinary uh, legacy for a director well absolutely he did one of
1: those things that too few people in rock do after reaching a point of extraordinary success he decided he'd had enough and he went on to just live his life and uh, you know was not really seen in the public eye for 20 years Mm -hmm. it was really rare that he spent two hours with us on the radio show in its previous incarnation and it was only because he wanted to talk about music and then we couldn't shut him up. That's why we want to pay tribute to him. I think the perfect song is uh, Pretty in Pink by the Psychedelic Furs. He probably discovered it at Wax Tracks in 81 when it came out on their second album Talk, Talk, Talk. It germinated the idea. He did not direct Pretty in Pink, uh, the film. He wrote it and produced it and he said that the song inspired the screenplay. The Psychedelic Furs wound up Re-recording it, I think at the behest of the record company in a somewhat inferior version, let's play the version John Hughes fell in love with. the, uh, the album version from 81. Here is the psychedelic Furs with pretty and Pink on sound is raining all
0: day. She loves to be one of the girls She lives in the place in the side of our lives but nothing is ever.
1: in Pink by the psychedelic Furs on Sound Opinions in honor of John Hughes, Dead at 59.
0: Everybody got somebody to lean on. Put your body next to mine.
2: Handled with care by the Traveling Wilburys. Why are we playing the Traveling Wilburys at this point? <laughs> we wanted to look at this idea of the supergroup, where multiple band members from already famous bands get together and create a new group out of it, uh, the supergroup. The Traveling Wilburys exhibit one in a lot of ways for this phenomenon. In the 80s, Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, Jeff Lynn, George Harrison, and Tom Petty, five pretty big names already on their own, got together in a recording studio and made an album as the Traveling Wilburys. Later on, made another album without uh, Orbison, who had died at that point. But the point being that this is a phenomenon that has been going on through pop music history. We're going to look a little bit at that phenomenon today, but why is it on our mind this week, Jim? I'll tell you why, because we were uh,
1: two of the luckiest people in the universe, <laughs> the 1,100 people at Metro in Chicago at midnight on uh, Sunday last week at the end of Lollapalooza, right? We had just spent 35 hours in Grant Park trying to cover as many of the 142 bands as possible, playing that giant festival, sold out at 75000 Per day, We had talked a couple of weeks ago about how uh, the Beastie Boys had to cancel their appearance at Lollapalooza and a couple of other big festivals because Adam Yauk was battling cancer. Apparently, the promoters tried to get this new super group, Them Crooked Vultures, to take that slot. They liked the idea of coming to Chicago to play their first gig anywhere in the world, but they wanted it much more intimate. Mm-hmm. So they put out a fan club notice. Uh, they haven't played anywhere, but they already have a fan club. And a certain limited number of tickets went on sale. No press invited. How did we get in? Never mind. <laughs> and we got to see this show. Who is this band? Dave Grohl of Nirvana and the Foo Fighters on drums. Josh Homey of Queens of the Stone Age and formerly Caius on uh, vocals and guitar. And the Mighty, the Un- beatable John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin on bass. It had really been a rumor, this project, that that Grohl had kind of dropped the idea years ago. Nobody ever thought it was really going to happen. And all of a sudden, they're playing for the first time anywhere in the world at this tiny club in Metro when they could have played to 75,000 people.
2: Yeah, Jim, it was a thrill to be there because it was a close range. It was like watching a bomb go off. Whenever you've got Grohl uh on drums. You know the energy level is going to pick up. You know, all due respect to the guy as a singer, guitar player, songwriter, where this guy really needs to belong is behind that drum kit driving yes. a band. Hard rock I don't think does it justice. This was just some of the heaviest, hardest-hitting music I've heard in recent years. And Grohl was the guy making it go, and John Paul Jones bringing around this array of bass guitars. <laughs> I mean, started with a four-string bass. One looked like a bazooka. Moved up to six <laughs> strings
1: then eight strings, then ten strings, and then he was playing this thing that was like a lap steel yeah. bass
2: guitar. It was amazing. Yeah, it was it was fun to watch. And and Josh Homey giving it a little bit of that Queen sound with those uh, high falsetto vocals. But this was definitely a democracy. I mean, I, I, I don't think this band would have sounded the way it did if you didn't have those three personalities in the room at one time. We're talking about it instead of playing it, I should
1: say, because while there's apparently an album recorded, the band played 12 songs, no mm. encore, that apparently is the whole album it does not yet have a label does not yet have a release date there's no music out there we literally can't play the, the best thing you'll find anywhere on the net is a couple of cell phone snippets yeah. of video from that show but boy Grohl of course, was the John Bonham of his generation in terms of a massive drummer. And Josh Homey, like so many people of, of that age group, grew up worshipping Led Zeppelin. So these guys, who have been excellent in their own groups, mm-hmm. were really on their super best behavior and pushing themselves beyond their abilities even to, to reach some whole new level just because you're on stage with the bassist from Led Zeppelin.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because uh, th- there is a huge trend in this area once again. We reviewed a few of these bands on the show show where they have been amalgamations of other bands you know uh, Tinted Windows with Bunny Carlos Taylor Hanson James Eha Bunny with uh, Cheap Trick Taylor Hanson with Hanson, James E. Howe of the Smashing Pumpkins. We talked about Dead Weather with Jack White of the White Stripes, meeting Alison Mosshart of the Kills. We've talked about the Raconteurs, another white band with mm-hmm. Brendan Benson. We have neglected to mention Chickenfoot, I think. I don't know movie, how of. we did that. <laughs> Sammy Hagar <laughs> of Van
1: Halen and Montrose, Michael Anthony of Van Halen, Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Joe Satriani, the uh, superstar guitarist who hates Coldplay.
2: <laughs> and uh, Monsters of Focus coming up with uh, Connor Oberst, Bright Eyes, My Morning Jackets, Jim James, and M. Ward forming a band, going out on tour, releasing an album, and my favorite, uh, Damnocracy. Sebastian Bach of Skid Row and Ted Nugent, who's Ted Nugent. He needs no introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to come back, Greg, and talk
1: about this whole twisted history of the Supergroup from the 50s through the present. That's in a minute when we come back on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, we'll review the new album from rapper Most Deaf. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That mercifully short clip of sound was the new supergroup, (laughs) Chickenfoot. We are talking about the history of uh, supergroups and the ones that worked and the ones that didn't on Sound Opinions today. Greg, I got... A theory about supergroups, as I often do, right, uh, on these things. So Sammy, Mike, Joe, and Chad get together. (laughs) They, they, They play in the basement, right? They're just any Sammy, Joe, Mike, and Chad. And who cares? Maybe it clicks and maybe it doesn't why, when all of a sudden they're Sammy Hagar, Michael Anthony, Joe Satriani, and Chad Smith, is there a better chance of that band working as a group? You know, in order for a super group to work, I think it presumes two things. Number one, that these people really are super. And I would say, all due respect to the records he sold, that Sammy Hagar, or Michael Anthony, for that matter, in any incarnation, are not all that super as far as a larger-than-life rock talent. But number two, why would you think, just because you put them in front of, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer and Joe Satriani, that there is any chemistry. You know, mm-hmm. bands, no matter how talented the individual members are
2: and how much of a reputation they have in other contexts, they're not necessarily going to work together. Sometimes though, Jim, you have to look at these supergroups as happening on a thin air. It's almost an accident that they happen. I think lately, we've seen much more calculated reasons for supergroups to get together. You know, it's it, there's money involved. Back in 1956, I don't think there was such a thing as a supergroup. It certainly wasn't on Sam Phillips' mind, the great producer in Memphis at Sun Studios when he was uh, doing a session with Carl Perkins. Perkins was coming off of Blue Suede Shoes. He was looking to record a follow-up hit in the studio at the time was a fledgling piano player, desperate for work a guy named Jerry Lee Lewis and then Sam Phillips' greatest find up to that point, Elvis Presley just happens to be cruising the neighborhood with his girlfriend and decides to drop into the studio the next thing he gets on the phone with uh, Johnny Cash and says hey Johnny, you might want to come down to the studio, we got a few people in here you might want to see, a couple of his old pals, Cash had already had a couple of hits as well for Sun Records Phillips makes one more phone call calls a reporter at the local daily newspaper and has him come by with a photographer to capture, document this event. But Phillips, to his credit, perhaps eternally, just rolls some tape and says, boys, we're having fun. You know, we got this photo op, we'll take a photo, and you guys do whatever you want to do. And and basically, what he did was preserve a moment in time where you had these four soon-to-be legendary figures in the studio at one time, just bantering, going back and forth, trading songs, basically trading the songs that they grew up on. Mostly gospel songs, a lot of old blues, R&B, doo-wop, vocal group-type stuff, and just having a ball in the studio. So it's kind of, talk about being a fly... On the wall at one of the most important historical events of musical history of the last 50 years. That's basically what Sam Phillips provided. It goes Uh, on to be called
1: the Million Dollar Quartet. That's how it goes down to history. And really, the birth of rock and roll, as well as the birth of the supergroup, is what you had in that room.
2: Yeah, and what's amazing about it, Jim, again, is that that Phillips didn't really knuckle down and say, you know, guys, give me a song. But there were a few moments where things came together, and you can hear Elvis, who takes most of the lead vocals here, Cash really didn't participate so much in the musical aspect of it. He was there mostly to observe. But Perkins was on guitar certainly and, and Lewis was banging out that piano and also inserting himself on the vocals, making yeah. sure that people knew I'm here. He doesn't uh, take a
1: backseat to anybody. So
2: you can hear it on this particular song, Just a Little Talk with Jesus, where you hear the million dollar quartet in action in nineteen fifty six on Sound Opinions. Just a little talk with Jesus. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: I, I, Once was lost in sin, but Jesus
0: took me in. Fellow, then a little light from heaven filled my soul. He made my heart in love, and I wrote my name above. Fellow, just a little talk with my Jesus gonna make me right. Let's have a little talk with Jesus. I tell him all about our troubles. You will hear our friend's cry, and he will answer why. Oh, well, oh, oh, oh. when you feel a little prayer, we'll turn it You will know oh, a little fire burn burnin You will find oh, oh. a little talk where Jesus. Jesus makes it right. upon a- oh. you, 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 oh. you oh. may have doubts and fears. your <laughs> sure, I Fill with tears, fill with tears. Oh, now my Jesus is a friend who watches day and night and when, when he wrote my name above I, And he bade my heart in love oh, Well, just a little talk with my Jesus, Jesus Gonna make, make it right just a little
1: talk with Jesus by the Million Dollar Quartet from uh, the 50s, from Sun Records. We wanted to bring that in, Greg, because I think most people believe that the idea of the supergroup began in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But, but I really think that it was already, the, the template was already there.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Jim. And I think that the stakes changed. Uh, you know, Fast forward 10 years to the 60s, and you saw a whole different set of uh, concerns and pressures being involved. When you saw the group Cream form in England in the, in the mid-60s, there was already this idea that we're going to take these name-brand players and, and, and form a great group out of it. Eric Clapton was was really well-known in England at the time. He'd already spent time in the Yardbirds and with John Mayles' Blues Breakers. His future bandmates in Cream, Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker, were less known, but they were really respected musicians. They had been together in this band, the Graham Bond Organization, and they bonded together, formed the Cream, and within a couple of years were a multi-million selling group that was playing arenas around the world and selling tons of records. At the same time, Clapton, in this experience, was really miserable because Bruce and Baker were constantly fighting, and there was a, a sense that the music was now about three guys up on stage uh, soloing their brains out and, and no longer involved in music-making for music-making's sake. It was more about individual egos rather mm. than the song. You know, I think Clapton and I think history, to an extent have taken a sort of jaded view about just how good this band was but if you listen to the studio recordings i think there was some excellent excellent music made by this band i think the songwriting was really top-notch much of it by jack bruce bruce was was an astonishingly good vocalist and clapton I think has never been better because he wasn't asked to carry the major load as the vocalist and frontman. He's always been best when he's been uh, surrounded by talents that are his equal and he's allowed to play the guitar. Yeah. And I think he did that very, very well in Cream, especially in those studio recordings.
0: Coming to me in the morning.
2: But nonetheless, the band broke up in 68, and he was already forging a bond with uh, Steve Winwood, a guy he'd admired for a long time as the vocalist in uh, the Spencer Davis group and in a new group called Traffic. Winwood was three years younger than Clapton. Consider that Clapton was 23 years old at the time, Winwood was a mere 20. And Klein was looking at this guy and says, You know, I really want to make music with this guy. I want to do something lower key. Mm-hmm. I want to do something that is less about this stadium level mega band that Cream had become and do something more intimate. So that was the initial idea with Winwood. But what we can see here is the corrupting influence of major labels and money. Because the group that Clapton formed with Winwood and later on Ginger Baker called Blind Faith was a super group times 10. The band quickly went into the studio made a record, and their first show was in Hyde Park in the summer of 1969 in front of 100,000 people. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure in that kind of debut. No pressure. Clapton's going, what have I gotten myself into? I went from one quote-unquote supergroup into another in no time at all. The music never really had any time to incubate. They never really got a chance to become the great live band that Clapton thought that they could become. So within six or seven months, he had left Blind Faith as well. But they left behind some extraordinary music. Again, there was three or four songs on that first Blind Faith album, the first and only Blind Faith album, that are really extraordinary. And it was a chance here where, you know, if this group had been given a little time to develop, they could have created something really amazing. But as it was, we're left with just this one record.
1: But I think, Greg, as extraordinary as Blind Faith was, I think when you talk about supergroups from the 60s, you've got to look at Crosby, Stills, and Nash, plus sometimes Young. Mm-hmm. The story goes that these three musicians who had all had some success already, David Crosby as a member of the Birds, Stephen Stills in Buffalo, Springfield, and Graham Nash with the Hollies, it was kind of a loosey-goosey thing. You know, everybody's hanging around getting stoned in the <laughs> 60s at a party. At uh, Cass Elliott's house, Mama Cass Elliot, and these three guys start harmonizing, and the idea is born. Now, that's the simplified, uh, let's all go back to the garden version of it, right? In fact, obviously, they had all had careers. They had all had careers in bands where they had been mm-hmm. uh, underappreciated they felt. Crosby taking a backseat to Roger McGuinn and the Birds, Stills obviously having to to play behind Neil Young, fronting Buffalo Springfield. So they all want to be stars, and they decide they're going to do it together, and therein lies the problem of Crosby, Stills, and Nash throughout their entire four-decade now history, at various times, any two or three, have been mad at the others. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Going back to my theories of why supergroups work and why they don't, obviously, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash made some fine music, and those are three wonderful voices. When you combine, it really is an instrument that is bigger than all three of them. So it works on the musical level. doesn't quite work on the personal level all the time. In fact, sometimes I think it's a little syrupy what they've done. Now, All of a sudden, they decide in 69 they need another ingredient. First, they're thinking, let's bring in that Steve Winwood guy on keyboards. (laughs) He's already been in in a couple of supergroups. The heck with that. They're managed by a guy named Elliot Roberts who makes the suggestion, you need Neil Young. I was watching one of those public broadcasting specials about Neil Young the other night and it struck me seeing him play with Crosby Stills and Nash it's like it's a fine dish that is missing something and all of a sudden you put in you know the the cumin or or the paprika mm-hmm. you know and it's like oh okay now it's something because Neil really can't sing as well as those three harmonizing guys right. but 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 you look at the version of say teach your children that they recorded before Neil, and then you look at the version from the live album, Four Way Street, with Neil, mm-hmm. and, and it's much, much better. They make their debut with Neil Young at Woodstock in 1969. And through all the years that have followed, Young kind of comes in when he feels like it. right? You know, and when he doesn't, he's gone. And those other guys all kind of fall apart without him. They all wind up feuding with each other. Sometimes Crosby plays with stills, and sometimes Nash plays with, you know, and it's like they can't hold it together. But when you add the why... You got something special. Let's listen to a little bit of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Let's hear that version of Teach Your Children that he wound up playing on from Four Way Street in 71.
0: Teach your children well Their father's health Did slowly go by And feed them on your dreams The one they picked the one you know by. Everybody sing with us. Don't you ever ask them why if they told you you would cry. So just look at them and sigh. I know they love you.
2: That's Teacher Children from Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young. And yes, Young, a very important ingredient here because... Crosby, Stills and Nash did have a tendency to argue among themselves but when you added the fourth person into the room at that point who happened to be Neil Young suddenly all the bickering went out of the way and the focus became the music again so you're absolutely right about that Jim in terms of the chemistry in the room and how one person can can change it for the better or the worse Well
1: absolutely a- and as you go into the 70s the nature of the supergroup changes Greg after CSN and Y after Cream and Blind Faith I think it's best illustrated in the progressive rock genre. By this point, you'd had all these English musicians who had had the first blush of success as members of these psychedelic pop groups that followed in the wake of the Beatles, right? Something like Emerson, Lake and Palmer comes out of the ashes of the Nice and the early King Crimson, right? And they're they're all three of them. They got billing right in the in the in the title of the band. They're yeah. all superstars, and basically, progressive rock was lousy with supergroups. Yes, was a supergroup when it formed. Steve mm-hmm. Howe had been in Tomorrow, and and Chris Squire had been in the Sin. Both had big hits in the UK in the psychedelic era but the progressive rock supergroup I want to play to illustrate the 70s version of this came a little later and none of the musicians were really A-listers although they were all extraordinary talents. UK was a short lived British supergroup from 77 through 80. It was uh, founded by John Wetton, who had been the singer and bassist in King Crimson, and uh, drummer of Bill Bruford, who'd also been in King Crimson and then in Yes, and then basically played with every prog rock band that ever did anything. The initial idea was to make a band with Rick Wakeman, but his label at the time wouldn't let the Yes keyboardist out of his solo project on top of being with Yes. They were each allowed to bring one other musician into the mix. Wetton brought in Eddie Jobson, who had played in Roxy Music, the electric violinist and keyboardist. And Bruford brought in Alan Holdsworth, the great jazz guitarist. UK made a couple of studio albums in that, guys. I will admit, the first band I ever saw... In an arena setting, UK was opening for Jethro Tull Ooh. in uh, 1979 <laughs> when I saw them. At that point, uh, Holdsworth was gone, and so was Bruford, but they had another superstar, drummer Terry Bazio, This extraordinary young talent who had made his name at that point, playing with Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. would go on to play with missing persons, right? right. But but so Wetton and Jobson and... Bozio on stage in an arena filled with people I mean it was just it was I guess the first band I ever saw was a super group <laughs> here is UK with the title track of that 79 live album night after night on sound effects darkness
0: descends on the freeway
2: Night after night from UK, one of the supergroups we're discussing today on Sound Opinions. To comment on supergroups or anything else we discuss on this show, call our hotline at 888 859 1800. You can also send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook. Jim and I are going to be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're inching our way into the modern era on supergroups and we're also going to review the new album by Most Death.
0: Come on.
1: Support for Sound Opinions is provided by Alltech Lansing, online at alltechlansing.com.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is Asia, of course. Everybody knows that song. <laughs> you saw it in the 40-year-old 40 40 old, version. Exactly. Yeah. Heat of the moment. We are talking about supergroups, and there was a, an iconic supergroup of, of the early 80s. We've already talked about uh, John Wetton, who is in one of Jim DeRogatis' favorite bands. We just found out about UK and uh, King Crimson before that. Steve Howe and Jeff Downs, both of Yes in Asia. And uh, Carl Palmer, who was kind of a supergroup whore in a lot of ways. He was <laughs> yeah. he was an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer before this, and, and they were uh, a supergroup. And... Does it stop to be so super yeah. <laughs> once you've been in three or four of them, you know? Exactly. Right. But uh, nonetheless, Carl Palmer kept making the good commercial moves because Asia sold a lot of records back in the early 80s. No, you're absolutely right. Look, I think that by the time you got to the
1: 80s, the idea of a supergroup, especially in the underground rock world, was already a bit of a... Of a joke. Anton Fear was a very talented drummer who'd played uh, in a number of wonderful settings including the Feelys and then the Lounge Lizards when he decided to put together basically a group of his friends in the uh, New York and Hoboken, New Jersey underground music scene in the early 80s and uh, kind of making fun of but at the same time paying tribute to the idea of the supergroups that had come before. He in particular was inspired I remember him telling me by Blind Faith Mm -hmm. okay? So what he's doing is basically collecting the cream of the Crop in the underground New York scene at the time in the early 80s. People like the vocalist Sid Straw, who went on to an extraordinary solo career, Michael Stipe of R.E.M. whenever he was in town, John Lydon of the Sex Pistols mm-hmm. and P.I.L., Anton even got Jack Bruce of, of Cream. People would come and go through the band he put together that was called the Golden Palominos. I really fell in love with the single they did. Michael Stipe of R.E.M. was on vocals. Chris Stamey of the DBs was on guitar. You had the great Jody Harris also adding guitar. It was a cover of a band from that earlier era. Mm-hmm. Moby Grape was in many ways in the, in the 60s uh, kind of a super group that was local to San Francisco. All these guys had reputations... You know, they they were the band with three guitars. Right. They were the band that released every track on their debut album was a single <laughs> that they all released simultaneously. And already you had, it in the late 60s, people were reacting against that hype. Mm-hmm. Because of this stunt of releasing every song at one time as a single, people dismissed the record. Right. But there was an incredible song called Omaha that was resurrected later on in the early 80s by the Golden Palominos. Here it is on Sound Opinion.
2: Minos on Sound Opinions, supergroup that was created in the 80s and was kind of a fluid lineup. I think another example of, of a band that we started to see in the 80s, and especially Jim, was a disaffected band member uniting with another disaffected band member to create a new band because their old groups weren't working anymore. Yeah. And that was the case with Electronic. Bernard Sumner was uh, not getting along with his bandmates in New Order anymore. That band was on hiatus. Johnny Marr had just seen the Smiths blow up when Morrissey, the singer, walked out of that band. Two talented guys looking for work. They bonded together, created Electronic, recorded a few albums together. Actually had a kind of a successful run and a few hits, mostly in the UK. I always thought Again, this sort of fluid, floating lineup that you could come and go as you chose and a little bit more freedom, perhaps, than they had enjoyed in their previous groups. We go back to that million-dollar quartet model, too, when I think of a band like uh, Temple of the Dog, which was basically an ad hoc band created to uh, record a tribute album to Andrew Wood, a Seattle singer who had died of a heroin overdose. He had been in Mother Love Bone. Wood, a key figure in the Pacific Northwest music scene, And Chris Cornell of Soundgarden and his bandmate Matt Cameron got together in the studio with uh, former Mother Love Bone musicians Stone Gossard and Jeff Amet, as well as a couple of new guys in town, Eddie (laughs) Vedder and uh, Mike McCready, to just record a bunch of songs.
4: But it's on the table, the fire's cooking.
2: But, you know, here was your 90s version of the Million Dollar Quartet as performed in Seattle.
1: Well, yeah, and then the 90s were lousy with it from that point on. You know, something like Mad Season or Fantomas yeah. or the Backbeat Band, which got together for that uh, Beatles movie uh, soundtrack. And and then I think kind of like the 90s ended in, in the mid-2000s with Audio Slave right. when Cornell is in <laughs> front of the musicians from Rage Against the Machine, which nobody ever thought was a good idea of a supergroup.
2: Right, right. And it's interesting that this never really caught on in, in the hip-hop realm. The more commonplace thing is to see a cameo vocal. It did happen in, in the R&B world with a group called Lucy Pearl, a combination of Raphael Sadiq, who had been coming off a long run of hits with Tony Tony Tone, Dawn Robinson, one of the vocalists in En Vogue, and Ali Shaheed Muhammad from A Tribe Called Quest. Now, all of these groups ha- had broken up. These three joined forces and made one Pretty good record. A record that I think initially was not commercially all that well received, but I think over time uh, some of the deeper tracks on it, some of the non singles, are gaining some traction and people realize hey, this group wasn't so bad. You know, it actually did some really good work. They were trying to forge a nice synthesis. Of street sounds that hip hop vibe with an old school R and B soul vibe. And I think they got about halfway there. I think if that if they had stuck around long enough to make another record, this group could have really been something. But as it is, we only have the one record and uh, here's a single from it Don't Mess with My Man on Sound Opinions. Don't mess with my-
1: Don't Mess With My Man on Sound Opinions by Lucy Pearl, rare example of a supergroup that is deserving that appellation, which wraps up our look at supergroups this week.
4: Supermagic, black origin, press me out of dopeness, definitely out of dopeness. Get another opus, knock lock off this set, we keep them open. heavens expand, the stars advance, they're the boogeyman. put your hand, healing power like bang, snap our refute stitches. We know the truth, you can't confuse me. Great name, greater than all your riches. Y'all done safe, I go that's the business.
2: That's Moe's depth with a song called Supermagic from his new album, The Ecstatic. Uh, known as Dante Torrell Smith to his mom when he was born in Brooklyn nearly 40 years ago. most Dev has forged a pretty prominent career more as a Hollywood and TV actor than as a musician in, in recent years. Even though he started out uh, making hip-hop records in the late 90s, the acting career sort of took over. He's been nominated for an Emmy Award, a Golden Globe, he's been in Be Kind, Rewind, he's been on The Chappelle Show, all the while making less and less interesting music. It started out pretty auspiciously in 1998 with a group called Black Star, with Talib Kweli. Put Mos Def on the map as one of the most innovative MCs on the planet at the time, and he followed it up in 1999 with his solo debut, Black on Both Sides. Has he returned to form on his fourth album, The Ecstatic? Uh, let's find out in a minute, but let's listen to a track first. It's called Life in Marvelous Times on Sound Opinions from Mos Def.
4: This is Best Star 82. Ninth floor, three tiny rooms, one view. Bucktown, Roosevelt House They green grass is green, I green grass is brown Shots rang, my phone wasn't touched on Heavy beef in the street, E.T. had to flee Great heavens, good grief Hungry bellies, bright gold on their teeth The windows on the ab look like sad eyes The fix sharp gaze on you when you pass by And if you dare to stand, you can see him cry You can watch him scowl, feel prowl while a steady size in every inch about you, fast math measurement, which you amount to the laughter, scream, the number roll, the song of songs, the book of dreams. Ends don't meet where the arms can't reach mean streets, even when it's free, it ain't cheap. All go saga a terminal diagnosis. Basic survival requires superheroics. No space in the budget for a cape. It's when you gotta fly by night to save the day.
1: That's life in marvelous times by Most Def, joined uh, by Mr. Flash on that track from the new album, The Ecstatic. Greg, if you go back to uh, 2006's True Magic, it seemed like Most Def's hip-hop career was over he was a prime example of the ice cube syndrome. The more money his movies made, the worse his music became. Until you wondered why he was even bothering. He just phoned that record in. His heart was not Mm -hmm. in it. This record is a welcome surprise. He seems to uh, really have been enjoying being in the studio. It's not particularly focused, this collection of 16 tracks. It's more like a mixtape. You know, stuff he was doing with various friends at, at different times. Some great producers, Mad Lib, and some tracks by the late Jay Dilla that I guess had been in the can that he added his uh, his raps over and just kind of emptying what's on his mind. He's thinking about everything from, uh, as we just heard, growing up in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn mm-hmm. to the injustices of what's happening in the war in Afghanistan. He's all over the map lyrically and musically, and as a result it has that kind of spirit of invention that we heard on
2: Black Star in 98. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing that I think Most deaf represented in the late 90s when he emerged was that all bets were off. Hip-hop didn't have to be one thing. It didn't always have to be about bling. It didn't always have to be about these certain kinds of beats. He blew the game wide open in terms of subject matter and the kind of beats he was rapping over. And on this record, he does reclaim that legacy. You know, there's Reggae on here, Philly Soul, Afrobeat, Bollywood, Euro. Dance. Two tracks now, where he raps in Spanish. Ex- exactly. I'm not sure that's a necessarily good thing, but. Yeah, he's, I don't think his Spanish he's is very good. But... All over the map. There's even one song where he's got this Turkish acid rock sample playing into a snippet from Mary Poppins, okay? <laughs> yeah. So uh, the guy is trying out a lot of stuff. Not all of it works, but most of it does. I think he's much more engaged on this record than he has been in a long time. And I got to point out two welcome cameos. We mentioned that earlier in the show about how that's a big part of hip hop. Mostly, this is most Step doing what he does best. But it's great to hear Slick Rick again yeah. on Auditorium. And it's great to hear Mostef collaborating with Talib Kweli on history. I think this is a triumphant return to form for, for Mostef. I think this is a buy it album all the way. Buy it, burn it, trash it. That's our rating scale. I
1: concur with you, Mr. Cott. Two enthusiastic buy it. What do we have on the show
2: next week? Next week, Jim, I am pleased to announce that we have the mighty Jesus Lizard back on the planet, making rock music, and they are in the studio for a live performance and an interview. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions is produced by our own supergroup, Todd
1: Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, And our fearless leader, our executive producer, the Carl Palmer of Sound Opinions, Tori, Southside, Malatia. On Sound
2: Opinions, Everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. I'm in the fumble it's a one
0: across the hall. If you don't answer, I'll just bring it off the floor. I know he's there, but I just try to call. Don't leave hanging on the telephone. New messages.
3: Hi, this is John Kutch from Harvard, Illinois, can we get a little consistency here, guys? So it's all right, you know, in your first segment of the show, to steal songs and MP3s. So bands can't make money that way. But then in your second segment, following that, Mariah Carey can't sell out in order to make money. That's just wrong and totally not cool. So do you have a magic business plan to, in order, you know, for bands to stay real Besides maybe constant touring, oh, maybe it's a pledge drive. Well, I don't think that'll work. Maybe Radiohead could pull that off, but uh, that's about it. So I don't know, guys. Maybe you could come up with a consistent position and maybe even a magic new paradigm business plan to share with all the rest of us. Otherwise, swell job. Love you guys lots. Bye-bye. Hi, my name is Josh. I live in New York. I think your latest Rock Doctor segment is great, but I wanted to give two more recommendations based off of what I heard. For starters, if he almost bought Mastodon, but got a little bit turned off at the end, I can't stand metal with the screaming lyrics, but Pelican, in particular the record City of Echoes, is fantastic. It's instrumental post-rock, but it's basically metal without screaming vocalists, and it's the first metal record that I really got. Uh, In addition, you also mentioned to him the Alejandro Escovedo record and the uh, Jason Lytle record, and I think the artist that he would really like, um, if he liked those and based off everything else, although he may know them with his old country stuff, is M. Ward. In particular, Duet for Guitars number 2 has those same kind of stories. There's some ties there back to Jason Lytle and Granddaddy and everything else. Well, were you there?
0: The river called the Colorado made the canyon they call gray Believe me now, my good man. I was there, but now
3: here I am. That's all. Just wanted to give a little insight and maybe recommend M. Ward and uh, Pelican. My good
0: man. When the watery volcano exploded into land, believe me now, my good man. I was there, but now you're I. am day made me shoot the shoe. He won the local lottery, and took a out. We put a barricade down the middle of the bed, but that didn't stop me from looking down the barrel where I, I thought I was thinking, thing. but apparently not. When I thought I was thinking, but apparently night
3: <laughs> Hey guys, this is Kevin from San Diego, California. Jim, I have to call you out regarding your review of the Fiery Furnaces new album. Now, I'm no big Fiery Furnaces fan, but the reasons you tore down the album seem like the very reasons you love another indie darling, the Decemberist. Your description of the Furnaces, quote, hyper literary assault of words that is just so precious, is exactly how I feel about the annoying, precious crud. Colin Malloy records.
4: Wasn't it a lovely breeze that swept the leaves of Arbor and bent to brush our blushing knees? And here we died our little dance, and we were left to catch our breath so
3: swiftly lifting from our chest. At least the furnaces have the mercy to do these things in short, digestible bursts. By your description, the supposed orc-top ethics of the Decemberists are built on the same things You seem to hate about the fiery furnace. Just my two cents.
4: Isn't it bad? No more messages.
1: To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.